about death is uncomfortable. We think if we don't talk about it, it won't happen. Sadly, this isn't true. It's the only thing in life that we can be certain about. And because we don't talk about it, often we don't know what to do when we experience the death of a loved one. My name is Fiona Garvin and this is Deadly Serious Conversations. I'll be talking to a range of people who will share their knowledge and experience so we can learn how to make dying part of living. Today on this episode of the podcast, I have a lovely chat with John Slater. John is a funeral photographer. Now, funeral photography isn't a genre of photography that we hear talked about a lot. For some people, this concept may seem disrespectful or even morbid. But through the course of conversation, John shares with us how his clients have felt he was their eyes when they couldn't see with grief. We have a lovely discussion about the importance of documenting the kindness and compassion that can be seen at funerals and how important these images are in years to come. Good morning, John, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. And we're going to have a a little chat today about funeral photography. Now, Funeral photography is one of those things that may sound a little bit morbid to some people, or it can even sometimes sound disrespectful. But I know from my perspective and from where I'm standing, there's often a lot of beauty that can be found in funerals. So would you like to tell us a little bit about funeral photography and, and some of the sorts of things like that you like to photograph at a funeral? All right. Well, in terms of people's concern that um, funeral photography may be inappropriate. I, a couple of years ago, I reached out to some clients um, and I asked them what they thought, um, you know, of my work two or three years after the funeral. And one client, Margaret, said to me, when we were blind with grief at mum's funeral, you were our eyes. And that to me, completely summed up exactly why I photograph. I do it for families because the day of the funeral is so overwhelming, they simply can't take everything in. And the photos allow people to revisit the funeral when they're ready um, and they can stop whenever they want. They control the whole process. So it's a form of grief therapy. Um, which is otherwise unavailable, particularly in our society where we've dispensed with all the symbols of death. We don't have a gravestone anymore. We don't even have ashes on the mantelpiece. We get the, get the funeral over as quickly as possible and then we get on with our lives. But I don't really think you can get on with your lives if you don't actually reflect. So that's a very long-winded answer. and I didn't answer half of your question. <laughs> That's a beautiful description. You were our eyes when we couldn't see. That's stunning. And so, John, how would a family choose a particular funeral photographer? Is it something that the funeral director might suggest or do families organise it of their own accord? Or how does that come about? It comes about primarily because families reach out to me directly. Um, They type in funeral photography and there really aren't many funeral photographers in Sydney, let alone Australia. 
and the reason they reach out to me is primarily because Sydney is an international city and they have friends and family overseas and they very much want them to have a record. Um, so I started funeral photography before um, live streaming. Um, and I'll never move to live streaming because I think there's, it's more important for me to have, you know, single images summing up situations. Yeah. And so when a family meets with a funeral director, the funeral directors, do they know about you or are they okay for you coming in to do their, to, to photograph or? Um, I tend to work with the independent funeral homes. I find them to be far more agile and far more personal in their service than, than the big funeral homes. Um, I've never experienced any hostility from any funeral director um, when, I've, when, I've, when I've worked at a funeral. Um, and that may be because I'm extremely discreet. Um, I never use flash on my camera, for example. My cameras are very quiet. And I would rather sacrifice an image than, than disrupt the proceedings. So I'm the antithesis of one of those nightmarish wedding photographers that just take over weddings. <laughs> Not your man. Yeah, very inconspicuous. And do you have a long lens? Like, do you have to be right up front to be able to capture all of those little moments? Or can you be a little bit further back? I, I have two, well, I have to, whenever I work, I have two cameras and I have, a long lens on one camera and a wide lens on the other camera. So I capture everything. I tend to go up to the, I work typically from the side of the chapel um, towards the front, um, providing I can be inconspicuous. Just, you know, the key family members are at the front of the church and they're the ones that are most important from my perspective. Lovely. And so, John, funerals and weddings are one of those few times where we are able to have extended family all together at the one time. And personally, I think it's a really lovely thing to be able to document that there could be people who may not have seen each other for years or perhaps even it's one of those things we often say we only meet at funerals and weddings and it could be the last funeral or wedding that they've been at. Um, and, and we often don't realise the importance of that until it's too late, until it's over and, and it's in the past. But also, I think the other beautiful thing about funeral photography is that it, it documents for the family all those people who are there, who've come to pay their respects and show how much their person was loved and after the funeral as well. Would you... Is that your experience as well? Do you see people who come in together who haven't been together in a long time? Absolutely. Um, and all sorts of people come. So, for example, the, the person might, might have been a member of a four-wheel drive club. So, you know, a club will just turn up or they might have played tennis. And so all the members of the tennis club turn up and they want um, But more importantly, definitely family are coming from overseas um, those who can will, will come. And I never try and, all my photography at the funeral itself is candid, but certainly in the wake, I say to a key family member, I, I'm not gonna organize any photography, but given that you've got all these important family members who've come together from you know, Australia, it would be lovely to have some group photos. 
Um, up to you to decide whether or not that's appropriate. I, I personally think it's very, the wake is a great time because it's a time of celebration, um, but I would never impose it on a family. But I do think it's really important. It's, it's a big time that families come together. Yeah. And for me, a wake is just as important as the funeral, because that's when all of those beautiful stories are told and, you know, a trip down memory lane and people are a little bit more relaxed. It's just lovely to be able to observe that from where I'm standing. So to capture that must be priceless for the family as well. It's lovely because, yeah, there you have the laughter. And, and the fond the fond memories and the catching up of old friends and it's it's lovely because God, they sum up all these kind all these people being kind to each other and generous and you know beautiful really reflect well on the person that's died it's it's a time and it should definitely be part of yeah, I recently had a funeral where there was a lovely gentleman who belonged to a choir. And so as we were leaving, the choir formed a guard of honour and they sang for him. And when I see moments like that, the photographer in me thinks, oh, I just wish that could be captured. You know, it's just so beautiful. It's lovely. Um, it, it should happen more. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> and the other thing, you know, I often reflect about photographs, John, is the importance of documenting an occasion such as a funeral for young children, particularly children who may not be able to remember the actual day and who might have lots of questions in the future, say, about their mom or dad's funeral. And if it's documented, they can go back and look at those photos and see how much their mom and dad was loved and, and all see themselves there. I know for my kids, they love looking at photos, particularly from a time that they can't remember and, and asking questions about it. So, you know, photographs would be so important for them as well. I think so. And when we were talking before the podcast, we were talking about the importance of stillborn um, funerals to families. And similarly, I've photographed quite a few funerals um, where the typically it's the father who's died unexpectedly quite young. And the mother has engaged me for her young kids who might be as young as you know, two or four years old. And her primary reason for engaging me is to show to the child that their father was incredibly loved, um, that he, never, he didn't die alone. And so, yes, I do think um, we need to be taking these photos for the kids, um, for when they grow up and they want to understand um, who, who their father or, or mother was. Yeah. And you briefly touched on documenting stillborn funerals. And yeah, incredible work. Very, very important work to document how important that ceremony and, and that beautiful baby is to the community and to their mom and dad and just making sure it's recorded. They've got it as a priceless gift forever. Absolutely. And if I was to promote um, funeral celebrants, my first stillborn funeral, um, it was a young couple and their friends had turned up and they, you could sense how awkward their friends felt. They didn't quite know whether it was appropriate to actually have a funeral for a stillborn. And this genius of a funeral celebrant very discreetly made them aware that their role was to support um, the young couple in public. And 
all of a sudden the, the, you could feel the funeral gelling and you could feel the relief on the couple's face. Um, it was quite an extraordinary moment where it just suddenly turned from being awkward to being incredibly important. Um, so yes, funerals for stillborns, I think, have enormous value. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so, John, would you suggest someone is organizing a photographer, would you suggest that someone in the immediate family take on that role of organizing and coordinating yourself or perhaps to liaise with yourself and answer any questions? Or would it be someone who is closely related to the person who's died? I always I always ask for a key person um, on the day so I can ask them who are the important people who must be photographed and I also go to that person um, at the wake for example to organize group photos so it, it it can be a friend or it can be a family member as long as they understand um, the importance of the people at the funeral it takes it takes the pressure off the key family members who are you know distraught with grief um, so I think you need a certain amount of distance but enough intimacy that they know who's important. Yeah. And so would a family give you a list of things that they want to document? Or I know you said it was very candid. Do you just take a, there's no limit to what you might take a photograph of? I have very little um, contact with the family before the funeral. Typically they ring me up and we work, they send me a form which tells me where the funeral is, where the wake is. Um, and that's it. And, but I, I say to them, on the day of the funeral, I need to meet the key person at least half an hour before the funeral. And that's when I have a chat with them and they, they, they tell me who's important. And also importantly, um, the other mourners present see that I'm actually meant to be at the funeral, that I'm not paralyzed. And that's terribly important because invariably people look at photographers with suspicion. And when, when they see that I'm with the family member or family friend, they, they, they accept me. And would you suggest the celebrant makes, as part of their introduction, makes it known that the, the day has been documented just to alleviate that? I think that's a great idea. And sometimes I'm, I'm printed in the order of service, again, to legitimise my role. Um, yeah, I've noticed sometimes, John, that guests sometimes feel it's important that they capture some of those details from the day. And although it comes with really, really good intentions, it can come at a cost where it can be sometimes distracting to others. And having a photographer there means that the guests can put away their phones and focus on being present. And if I put it out there publicly, then it's almost like everyone can just sit back and be present a little bit. I agree with that. And also, a lot of churches have appalling lighting. They're just shocking. They're the dismal rooms that are bad. And as good as iPhones are, they simply cannot cope in these conditions. And so you know, I've got a very high-end camera that can shoot in near darkness and still deliver a beautiful result. It's far, it's far better for me to do the work than people um, with their iPhones. And also, you're absolutely right. It, it not only distracts from the service, but it also interferes with my work. I used to do christenings and they just became unbearable because the baby would be baptized and there'd be 10 invariably women with 
cameras um, blocking. They all wanted to record it for themselves with, good, with the best of intentions. And it meant that I could no longer work. Um, and I, it's got to the stage where priests have now banned cameras from churches um, because it, it, it's turned you know, a sacred ceremony into a circus. And I hope that never happens. I really, it's such a lovely zone to work in. It should never be turned into. Yeah, and it's also inviting everyone just to be present and to acknowledge why you're there and, and let that be your focus and leave it, you know, if there is a professional there, allow the professional to, to do their job and do what they can with the equipment that they've got to actually professionally do that. Yeah, so once the funeral has happened, John, what happens with those photos? How do you present them to the family? So within generally three business days of the funeral, I upload the images to a hidden page on my website so the family has access to all of them. And then they can easily share that with friends and family overseas. And before we started recording, you showed me a beautiful book. Um, will the family then come back to you um, and you offer to put them in a book for them or how does that happen? The, the keepsake books can contain anything. They can contain images from the life. They can contain poems, family trees, whatever. And I make it really clear to families that this is their book. It's not about me. It's about what they want. And it's fascinating what families come up with in these books. Um, how do we start the process? Generally, I say to families, choose, there are two ways of doing this. You can choose your top 20 images from the funeral and I can then design the book around them. Or alternatively, I can design the, the book initially and then you can tell me what I did right and what I did wrong. Um, Typically, it takes about three, three drafts of the book before the book's finalised. But I think that process of working on the books is a practical form of grief therapy because what happens is that, you know, up, up, and, up, and, up and to including the day of the funeral, you're, you know, every, everyone is focusing on you. And then after the funeral, people start to drift away. Um, they get on with their lives and after a while there's an expectation that you too should get on with your life and often I'm the only sort of um, reminder that well I, I'm the only reason that people can actually revisit the funeral by taking the time to get the book right um, and I think that's terrible I mean a lot of people for example don't know that they can find grief therapists by going to their GP who will refer them um, my role isn't a grief therapist, um, but I think I've been, invariably I take on that role to a point, but I'm very conscious that I'm not a grief therapist. And I, and I say to families, you know, you should really be going to a GP, but being able to work on the funeral book is, is a practical form of grief therapy. And I, that's why I think they're so important. Yeah. The other thing I love about the books is, or your concept of the book, is that you also include the tributes that people have written and shared from the day. And so everything is contained in the one place rather than having an email from this person with their tribute and an email from that person. And it's not all together. Everything can be included in your book from the tributes and the eulogies and the poems or whatever. That's lovely. That's right. And 
I mean, it's so apparent that people go to enormous trouble um, when they present their eulogies and tributes. And you'll have these long, detailed, you know, biographies of the person's life. And to not record that properly would be such a shame for future generations. Because often, like, I can think of, for example, Noonga funerals in Western Australia. And they, they go into great depths about, you know, the terrible circumstances of, of the upbringing of these, um, of, of the person, and then how they overcome difficulties and, and how they made a success of their lives. And they're amazing stories. And there are hundreds and hundreds of words. And for that to be lost, I think, is, would be terrible. So, yes, it's a permanent repository of, of important, you know, family um, lore. Mm. And the other thing about putting it in a book, John, is when I meet with families, they often struggle, depending on who the funeral director that they're going through, they might have a limit to how many photos they're allowed to display in the slideshow during the actual ceremony. And so they really struggle with trying to decide which photos to include. And my suggestion has always been, if there are photos that you have that you want to share, Decide on some of the ones that you want to share in the ceremony, but then put some to the side that you might want to put in a little book like that, you know, so that it's taken away that fear that I wanted this one to be shown. Yeah, if it's in a book and it can be shared with the rest of the family, then everybody's got it. So that can be nice as well. I think so. On that point, I've seen two recent things that have, um, which I really liked. And one of them is at the wake. Um, the family has sort of placed small framed images of the person around the room. And it just allows, you know, friends and family to go up to them and, and remember in a low pressure sort of way. And I've recently done two Egyptian Coptic funerals and at the wake, there's an enormous poster, which is, I don't know, three feet by two feet. And that poster has probably up, up to 100 images of the person with friends and family. And everyone makes a point of going up to it and seeing it and taking their time and looking at it and, and photographing themselves with the poster. And I think that's an ingenious way of handling images. Um, so, yes, definitely include them in the book. Um, I've recently just worked with a family and the photos from life actually have overwhelmed the book. <laughs> 60 pages and, and my photos are only about 30 pages and the photos from life are like a, <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> and I say to families it's their book, so that's appropriate. But in terms of, I mean, I, I love the books because there's such poetry, you can, visual poetry. And often photos from life are pretty, Appalling technically. I know, I know they're very important for other reasons, but as a photographer, I just cringe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And John, when people receive their photos, do you get any feedback to whether they find that process confronting, having a look at the photos from the funeral? No one has ever said it's... Well, no, they have said it's confronting because they've... because. I'll gently remind them after a couple of months if they haven't come back to the book. And often they say, look, we're just not ready yet. So clearly families um, do find it confronting, um, but other families just can't 
they just want to get on with it because they just love the process. Um, so really courses for courses. I'm not in any rush. Um, I don't impose deadlines on families, but I will occasionally nudge them and just say, you know, I'm still here if you're ready. Yeah. And on your website, John, you talk about the concept of exquisite witnesses. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I'd, absolutely. So this was introduced to me by an extraordinary woman called Patricia Thomas, who's a counsellor for a Catholic charity. And an exquisite witness means someone who is highly sensitive and sorry, exquisite means highly sensitive and witness simply means an observer. And you should never grieve alone. You need someone to witness your grief, not to tell you what to do, but simply to witness your grief so that the sting of grief is eased. And the analogy is if, if a child wakes up screaming in the middle of the night because it's had nightmares, you get the child to, to recount those nightmares. And by sharing this pain, the, the fear is dissipates. And that's what a witness does. They don't have to do anything. They just have to witness um, the person in grief. And I think that has enormous um, therapeutic values. And I'm not an exquisite witness, but I think my photos are because they provide evidence that the person hasn't been grieving alone and they're not telling the person what to do. So it's a very, I think it's, I think particularly as a male, we're always told that we should be doing things and you can't just simply be. Um, the idea that you could be and actually help someone is, is inconceivable, really. Um, but this concept of exquisite witness says it's absolutely appropriate to simply think that you can support someone by doing nothing other than being with them. Just sitting beside them. And sometimes that's just sitting beside them and staring at the wall, doing nothing. It's a beautiful description. Yes, please try and um, interview Patricia Thomas. She's extraordinary. Oh, oh thank you I, for the suggestion. <laughs> at the same funeral, I, there was a, a sister and she, she was a tiny woman. She, she couldn't have been more than five foot. And she was a member of a closed order down the South Coast. And she knew the young woman who had died. And she was given permission to attend the funeral. And I watched this tiny woman restore the faith of the mother in about a minute and a half. And all she did was look into her eyes. And this crumpled mother all of a sudden was able to recover spiritually. And this was, and the nun was tiny. She didn't do anything. It was in a crowded street. There were cars going up and down. And yet she was able to restore this woman's soul. And that's extraordinary. It's quite amazing. And I actually thought to myself, these closed orders actually enable people to do that. Because if you're out in the world all the time, you can never really recharge yourself. You're just giving the whole time and you're exhausted. But if you know that you can cloister yourself, when the time comes, you can give yourself completely to restore others and then you can retreat and recuperate. So I had to put that in because I was so blown away by it. I witnessed it and it was just extraordinary to see. 
Yeah, and I think that's the thing about funerals. Like we are privy to such tenderness and kindness and compassion that you don't see a lot of. No, no. They're not about consumption at all. They're about kindness. My primary motivation, I think we need more evidence that people can be kind to each other. Yeah, for me, that's one of the most humbling things about working in the funeral space is, is the kindness that you can witness. It restores your faith in humanity. It does. I, mean, I can think of weddings where I overheard the bride saying to her, her mother, who the hell was that priest to tell me what I should do with my life? Because the priest was, you know, officiating and sort of telling them they had to be together for better or for worse. And then after the wedding, this angry bride. <laughs> and I've never heard anything like that at funerals. Yeah. And so, John, we are not familiar with taking photos in the sad moments of our life and particularly now in this age of social media where everything is almost like a highlight reel you know many of us think that we're ugly criers like I know for myself I'm not I can't imagine wanting a photograph being taken when I'm crying and the thought of having that documented can be I can imagine be distressing or can make some people feel vulnerable with that in mind, do people hold back their emotions because they know there's a photographer there? No, I don't think they do. I think they're so in the moment that they're oblivious. And I would never, I would never shove a camera in someone's face. Um, and I would never photograph someone just howling consolably because I'm primarily motivated by people being kind to each other. I'm really focusing on images of support uh, rather than people alone. Yeah. And I recently had a, a family who is during COVID time and it was a very intimate burial. And they wanted a group photo with the coffin just before the burial. Um, and they asked me to take it. And one of the things I walked away from that moment thinking, if it's meaningful to that family, then there really is no limits. It's, it's what's important to them. From a photographer's point of view, do you have anything that is off limits to photograph? Yeah, and I think you just touched on it there about, you know, not putting a, a camera in someone's face who's really distressed. Look, there's nothing that's off limits. Uh, well, the, the only thing that's off limits is any anything that's unkind. I've photographed many, many bodies, but I'll always do it in a sympathetic manner. There's nothing that I wouldn't record. And do you post funerals? on your social media, John? I will only post those images that aren't, that the families are happy for me to post, um, which is frustrating sometimes because I've got such beautiful work and I just can't show it. I ask for permission and they simply say, look, it's too raw. And I respect um, which is terribly frustrating on one level, but on the other hand, it's, you know, I need to, I need to be able to look people in the eye and I don't have a problem doing that at the moment. Yeah. And I know this probably is one of those questions that's very hard to answer because it, it takes in so many considerations, John, but how much can you expect to pay for a funeral photographer? So I, well, my standard charge is about 14, I think it's 14.95. And that's for the photography um, day. And afterwards I charge $875 for a book if they want the book. So I, I try and make it as reasonable as possible um, and give family families options. Yeah. 
Yeah. So where can we find you or where can families find you, John, to find your work and to learn more about you? The My website is thefuneralphotographer.com.au. And that I would particularly encourage people to read um, my blog because whenever I encounter something unusual, I tend to write about it so I don't forget it. Yeah, I've had a look at the blogs and they're, they're really interesting. I enjoyed it. It's, it's great work that you're doing. I'm, ultimately, I'm designing my own funeral. And whenever I think, oh, that's a brilliant idea, uh, I document it. And ultimately, I mean, I, there are so many beautiful things in different cultures. For example, at Kenyan funerals, they sing to the body. You might have two mourners from the congregation and they sing to the body. In, at the front of the church. And it's such a profoundly moving thing to do. At, at the Nunga funerals, they, they, they will, they will um, fill, up the, fill up the grave with, with soil. So everyone will take a turn in digging and filling the grave. And I think these are such great ways to involve people. And we, we don't tend to do them in, in the majority of, of funerals that I've witnessed. I like all of these ideas so as I find them I, I write about them yeah yeah and that's a great thing about living in Australia we've got such a multicultural society who bring in all of these rich beautiful rituals yeah that we can lean into I mean there was another there was a, a girl Hannah and she died when she, I think she was 16 from cancer and before she died she 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 assembled about 30 tambourines and wrote notes to all of her school friends. And then at the funeral, her school friends had the personalised tambourines, which they then used to accompany a song. I think that's ingenious. We need, need more ideas like this to make funerals um, personal. Yeah. And things like that, it really builds communities and it really supports the family in knowing that, yeah, there are many people who are involved in this and it's it's not just them on their own. It's acknowledging that their grief is wide and, and felt by a lot of people. And so, John, do you find this work emotional? Do you find it challenging sometimes or is it a case of because you're focused on your job that a lot of your concentration is going on what you're doing? Look, almost all my concentration is, is spent on, on the job because it's, it's very, very difficult work because, because it's candid and the environment is so hostile to photography, meaning the poor light, um, the inability to move around freely. I have to work so hard to get um, beautiful images. Um, having said that, the only real funeral that I struggled with, I... I photographed a funeral for a woman whose brother had died. And then a year and a half later, I photographed her funeral. And I'd really come to know her by working on her brother's book. And when it came for me working on photographing her funeral, it, it was difficult because she was such a lovely woman and I was trying to do the job and I was thinking about her. So that's, that's been the only, only difficult time for me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, John, for, for all that you do for all the grieving families. It really is truly a beautiful gift for them. And your work reminds me of that beautiful quote. I think it's Elliot Erwitt who wrote, 
the whole point of taking pictures is that you don't have to explain things with words. And for our family, looking back at those images, no words are really required when you see the kindness and you see the impact that someone has had and how many people are there. And yeah, it's just incredible. And it's something I think we should certainly have more of. And and I think COVID has introduced us to the idea that technology we can embrace it um, and, and we can use it to document at this time so thank you so much for it and the one thing I forgot to ask you is have you got a cuppa this morning I have a very strong cup of coffee beautiful well thank you so much John it's just been wonderful having a chat with you and yeah I really appreciate it thank you so much for inviting me on thank you Thank you.